Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Friends Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Laraman. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Terence Corrigan. Terence, how are you, sir? Well, okay, and yourself? I'm pretty good, pretty good. Uh, we're also joined today by Makone Maja. Makone, how are you doing? It's good to be here with you, finally, now that you're back. Yeah, now that I'm back uh, in, in the saddle, so to speak. Um, I just remind everyone about a little programming note. We will be doing a short version of the Daily Print tomorrow, which will be out at about five. It won't be broadcast live uh, on, on, on YouTube or the podcast apps, uh, but do check it out. There won't be a normal episode at 1.30. Okay, uh, so let's get into the news of today. And the first one is actually some comments from, I believe it was last week, uh, from Judge Raymond Zondo, our Chief Justice who says that he thinks that he really hasn't seen much change in parliament that indicates that the institution would be able to identify and stop attempts to recapture the state. He said, quote, if another group of people were to do what the Guptas did to pursue state capture, parliament would still not be able to stop it. That is because I've see, I see nothing has changed. And the constitution provides that the National Assembly is elected to represent the people. When the National Assembly fails to protect the people against state capture, it fails in its duty. When you represent someone in a forum, you're meant to protect that person's interests. And if you fail to do that, you fail in your duty. This uh, drew some uh, outrage from the institution of parliament itself, the spokesperson for parliament, saying, we note the attacks uh, 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 against us. We, we note that they are directed at the executive insofar as the current policy position of the electoral system is concerned um, is not the place of the chief justice to make such public remarks unless and until he is required to adjudicate on the matter with impartiality. The principle of separation of powers is fundamental to our democracy and requires that each branch of government to respect the roles and responsibilities of the other. Chief Justice uh, Zondo's public attack on parliament encroaches on this doctrine. Um, and basically, I think that uh, some of what the, the judge went on to say in his remarks is that uh, his state capture report was not being taken particularly seriously, uh, and very few changes had been made in line with it. So, Terence, let me start with you. What do you make of the judge's comments? What do you make of the response from Parliament? What do you make of the story? Well, I think, uh, okay, first of all, to, to uh, bemoan the uh, comments of the Chief Justice about this, uh, I think somewhat... Uh, overlooks the fact that he spent, what, three, four years uh, dealing with this every day. Um, he wrote this monstrous report, or at least oversaw, oversaw the, 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 the drafting of it, put his name to it. Um, I'd like to think he has some expertise. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe, may, you know, maybe we should, we should look at that. Um, I don't, you know, my, my own sense is that this isn't just about, um, this isn't just about electoral systems. Um, but I think that he does, he does have a point, uh, or he does make a kind of a bleak point in saying, well, when you rep, you know, you, you're elected to represent something, what are you rep elected to represent? Um, the people in a very general sense, but you are elected to represent a political party. And that I think is, um, is where the, uh, is where a lot of the problem arises. Um, that we have a very, very, we have a political system that's very tightly bound around um, around political party memberships and and uh, 
and party discipline. Uh, there have been, I think, four or five um, official, semi-official commissions that have recommended a change. And if I remember correctly, um, the uh, the first one, the one that's kind of always referred to, uh, by chaired by the late Frederick Gonzalez Lovett, um, it leaked out that uh, Kara Asmal, who um, you know is often regarded as the ANC's moral compass, had said something about how this should be filed in a dustbin. Uh, essentially, the uh, the ruling party had no intention of giving up of, of giving up the, the the party hold it has on its um, um, on its uh, on its MPs. Now, I do think also that that uh, the issue is um, so it, it is possible to make too much of this because I don't think that that simply moving to a constituency system or allowing independence to stand or whatever is uh, is a silver bullet. I think it's one of these kind of faddish things that we go through. If only we had this, then you know people would, you know, they would take the people more seriously. But you, you know, that can introduce a whole a whole set of other incentives and uh, uh, um, alternative lines of accountability. Um, I think it'd be better than what we have, but it's it's not a um, that that isn't a total solution. I think that that um, the reason why why state capture um, is possible, and I'd say, is still very much in in swing is you have to understand that state capture, you know, may be associated with the Guptas or with, uh, with with President Zuma. But remember that that the Great State Capture Project was enunciated by Nelson Mandela in 1997, cadre deployment, politicizing the country's institutions. That uh, was stoutly defended at the Zondo Commission by President Ramaphosa, who in fact said, and you can look this up, I think it's actually in the report, his response was this adds another layer of accountability. So apparently, if we get rid of a cadre deployment, we are really screwed. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, look, I, uh, look, you know, it's, it's kind of, if, if, if you believe this sort of thing, this sort of thing you will believe, and there's a bridge in Newtown that I have up for sale. Very reasonable price. <laughs> no, well, well, well put, Terence. Um, you know, I was very critical of the Zonda Commission while it was ongoing because I thought this thing is just going to be a talk shop and it's going to be like almost an emotional airing of, of grievances. We're going to find out things and then ultimately nothing will happen. And in that criticism, I was correct. However, what I didn't expect and what I was very pleasantly surprised by was some of the recommendations and the powerfulness of the report written by the Chief Justice, which included... Uh, some things saying that preferential procurement really wasn't uh, wasn't a great idea. That this is enabled state capture, which is something that the IRR has said for a long time. Um, and uh, he, he made a, a sort of raft of recommendations that I think were very positive and that we really should embrace. But it's probably not surprising that uh, none of them were adopted. Makone, um, what do you make of all this? Yeah, I think one thing the Chief Justice points out is that the branches of government are meant to serve as accountability partners to each other, right? But where you have a case such as in South Africa, where the executive is essentially the legislator, you don't see that act of like checks and balances or holding each other accountable coming in, particularly in those two branches. Um, but I, I absolutely agree with the Chief Justice. And if anything, I've made attempts to go through that mammoth of a report that is the state capture. 
this day capture all seven parts of them. And they, I think, one of the finest pieces of investigations to ever come out of South Africa. Um, for a more condensed version, I would recommend a book that was written by, I think her name is Elsa Salzweddle. It's an outer publication. It's titled Parliament uh, Permitted Plundering, How Parliament Failed South Africa. And in it, she details exactly what the Chief Justice is talking about, just numerous occasions that Parliament was presented with in holding members of Cabinet, members of Parliament accountable for various acts of corruption, um, implications directly with the Guptas. With, with, you, they didn't even have to do anything, by the way, because Alta would just present all of these things to them. They would just have to prosecute or, or act on, on, on holding those members of Parliament accountable. None, none of that happened. And again, this book does a stellar job of, of, of holding of holding government officials accountable. Sorry about that. Um, uh, and one of the ways in which she does that, I'll, I'll list two occasions on which that happens. One of them is she talks about a minister, former minister of communications and, and chairperson of COCTA, uh, Faith Matumbi, for example, how she forwarded um, confidential cabinet memoranda to um, the Gupta's ANN7 uh, media publication to help them in their uh, sale of SABC News to, to um, ANN7. And she just points out that instead of her being held accountable for that, I believe the Western Cape High Court made a judge had made a judgment against Faith Mutambi as Minister of Communications. What you see is she gets moved from one portfolio to the next. You see this um, with Malusiki Gaba. If he fails as Minister of Home Affairs, he's then shuffled over to Minister of Home Affairs and the cycle continues. And the message that is essentially sent there is if you get caught failing here, you are guaranteed a position elsewhere. And if you get caught failing there, then and you are guaranteed you, you will be moved around until you get caught again and the cycle continues so i cannot um i cannot stress um the importance of the statements made by the minister chief justice sondo so terence is it maybe fair to say that one of the that that the way our system is designed it really puts a lot of onus on the voters to produce a parliament that is extremely divided politically um, our, our political sort of our voting system does actually allow for that. Um, you know, you can get into parliament with less than 0.25% of the vote because of the, the fractions that get added to you. Um, and that parliament has been in many cases effectively just a ridiculous rubber stamp up till now. But say there is no party with a majority after the 2024 election. Um, we may be facing a parliament that finally becomes an important part of the political system uh, because you won't be able to just assume that one party is going to be able to kind of bulldoze their way through everything. Uh, and that's regardless of what coalitions are taking place to elect the president or whatever. What do you make of that, Terence? I think there's two things here. First of all, um, the way that our electoral system is, is constituted uh, creates a particular um uh a particular system of of of, of representation that that prioritizes part that prioritizes uh, parties so yes you know um if you if you're a sort of splinter you you form your own party and you can um uh, you can get in although i must say i don't think it's been a hugely significant thing at national level uh municipal level sure not not um not national but i think that um 
you have you have that which is paired with a particular political culture, and what, what I'm talking here, political culture mostly within um, uh, within the ruling ANC that has that sort of views itself as entitled to rule. Um, there's been um, a lot written about uh, about liberation movements and the way they um, uh, the way they see their role in societies. The ANC has never has never sort of come you know uh, 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 stepped out of this. Um, so yeah, you know um, that's that is you know even even if the ANC is. If the ANC is reduced below fifty percent or or whatever, you could it, it you know there, there would be more competition and therefore more more leverage. But ironically, um, there was a time in the in the in just after the transition, the sort of mid nineties, where the ANC caucus was actually uh, fairly committed to to um, undertaking undertaking accountability. Um, Tony Leon said that that lasted until the Serafina two scandal. Um, where, they, where, where they were whipped into line. If you look at the ANC caucus at that, at that stage, many of these people were, you know, um, well, first of all, the ANC had taken all of its talent and put it in parliament. And it actually, it did have some talent, uh, not just people with, with with credentials, but often, you know, real leaders who had um, uh, who had done done the hard yards over, you know, over a decade or more. Um, and they actually felt that they were representing the, you know the people. Sometimes it was quite exclusionary, but um, it was um, it it wasn't just about representing a brand. What's happened in the, sub in the subsequent period is that these um, is, is that particularly the ANC benches have become filled with 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 careerists. These are people who would find it very difficult to find um, uh, to find a remunerative position elsewhere. Many of those people in in 1994 possibly couldn't either, but at least but you know they did come with a sense of idealism. That they were bringing a new, um, you know, they're pioneering a new form of government, um, you know, and uh, the uh, ANC, to quote Richard Kelland, is a forgiving organisation. Um, you know, been very, very, very forgiving. Now, you know, I would also say that many, um, uh, many commentators were. And perhaps Mr. Callan, uh, Professor Callan, is one of these. I actually esteem him as a as an analyst, but I think his own writing is sometimes very forgiving of the ANC's conduct as well. Um, you know, it it they as an organisation, I think it was it was it was allowed to get away with a great deal, and ultimately, you know, the voters of South Africa, in you know whatever proportion, um, continued continued to endorse it. Um, uh, I don't. No, I, I. I will also stick up for 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 your ANC voter because you know everyone has you know must must elect whom they choose, and the ANC did did deliver some very tangible benefits if you think about social grants and whatever. Question is though, you know, you reach you reach a point of breakdown, and I think that's that may be where we um, uh, where we're going, and also you know reach a point where the resources that are available within within the system you have just won't satisfy the 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 aspirations of people who you know want something want something better you know like your your childcare grant is not particularly what somebody who's hoping to you know work in a high-rise in santon wants right a child grant is not the foundation of a secure and happy future correct um all right let's move on to 
our next story now. And uh, this comes, I think, originally from a, a article on MoneyWeb, uh, which talks about how South Africans are some of the most indebted people in the world. South Africans spend as much as 73% of their disposable household income on just servicing debt repayments. Uh, and that uh, the people were uh, vulnerable, um, many South Africans were vulnerable to predatory practices, this report claims by uh, creditor agencies, due to prevailing levels of poverty and, and financial illiteracy, uh, which leave many people unable to place their problems effectively before the courts. Unsecured credit card debt, for example, was 18 billion rand by 2022. Um, and just as an example of how much of this is going before the courts, in May of 2019, uh, the courts granted 19,000 judgments for debt worth 342 million rand, uh, and 47,000 summonses were issued for debt recovery in that same period. Uh, the authors of this article go on to say that they think that the problem here is that the law is not protective enough of people who are deeply in debt uh, and that the state should make greater efforts to ensure that the benefit of the doubt is essentially given to people who owe money as, as opposed to those who lend money. But to me, that seems very much like a kind of uh, band-aid solution, which will just result in higher interest rates and less credit being given to people who desperately want it. Um, McCorne, let's start with you. Firstly, you know, what do you make of the recommendations that we should be more lenient on people who borrow money? Um, but secondly, why do you think that South Africans are just so crippled by debt? Hmm. I think I'll start with the second part. Uh, we produced a report, actually, Herbrand van Herden, who often visits on the show, did a middle-class um, report showing how much indebted they are and I think it's one thing to have a high household income to debt ratio it's another thing when that debt is unsecured and what's happened as we've seen interest rates hike after interest rate hike is that people are leaning more and more into dipping into unsecured credit to supplement income shortfalls so I think the, I think people are just under great financial strain. Um, they do this thing where they model, like if you owe 200,000 rands on your car and you have a, a million rand of a mortgage, and they try to show how much are you still owing on that um, in terms of debt servicing costs. And what they're able to show is just over the last three years, you're paying 5,000 rand more in servicing those two debts uh, as a consumer. So um, one other thing to point out is, of course, that the rand has lost its value. I think the middle class has lost something like 38% in income purchasing power since 2016. So... Um, not only are people dipping into unsecured credit to cover for those income shortfalls, but the rand can't even take you as far as it could just seven years ago. And then in terms of law, I think there is a, a place to have this conversation about the role that the government can play in, in, in helping with credit. I don't think it's credit leniency. I think it's making, I think courts need to play a role in helping um, make contract or lease agreements or credit agreements become far easier for people to to interpret. In the article, they point out that uh, poverty and literacy are some of the reasons why people um, get into these uh, credit agreements. But I think it's one thing to be literate. It's another thing to be legally literate, to really understand legal jargon and contracts and, and, and so forth. So I think the courts can play a role in just sort of making contract law more accessible to to the ordinary person, to the reasonable man. Um, 
and I think that's a role that 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 government can play. Otherwise, I think I think documents like or laws like the National Credit Regu Regulation Act, as well as the Consumer Protection Act, uh, do a stellar job in providing extensive protections to consumers. Um, but I do think there is a huge loophole in 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 interpretation of contracts, even translation. Like let's let's make contracts available in languages that people can actually understand. I must say that uh, debt, yeah, debt really seems like a symptom of the much deeper problems, as you kind of said, McCormick, that everyone is under this ridiculous level of stress um, and that the situation is deteriorating so that people who used to be stable are now having to rely more and more on debt. Uh, Terence, what do you make of this story? Well, once again, I think, uh, come back to some extent to culture, I think that there is a, um, there's a very consumptive part of being a South African. Um, I remember actually working with this, this 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 lady once, and she just bought a new car. It was like you know, Taz or something, you know, small to run around. And I think like the day after that, she said, "Well, when she upgrades, she's going to get a BMW." So, well, you know, you just got your car. Enjoy it for the moment. Um, but you know, that seems to be the way that 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 uh, that that many of us think. I think part of that actually actually comes with being in an extreme, you know, living in a country with extreme inequalities. Um, I think that that uh, for um, many many poor people, sort of rank their own life experiences against the somewhat more affluent. So you know, a guy living in a, um, in a in a tin shed, you know, once you know the sort of formal house and car arrangement. People you know living in a living in a suburb, you know, want the bigger suburb. Um, We've always had a problem. South Africa's always had a problem with saving, even in the even in the good times. I remember uh, Trevor Manuel talking about this. You know, whereas I think Singapore uh, um, uh, saved something in the in the region of thirty percent of its uh, of its income in South Africa. I don't know, uh, I'm not I'm not sure of the exact number, but I think it's some, some, uh, single digits, or sometimes none at all. Um, now there are also a number of kind of structural things cities are very spread out so particularly poor poorer people have to spend enormous amount traveling you know if you're lucky enough to have a job um you have the phenomenon of of extended families where you know the one guy with the job ends up having to support you know a, a, a very very wide circle of um a very wide circle of circle of people and amongst um amongst the middle class there is still the expectation that uh, you you know you're going to have a comfortable life, so you know there's still you know the the trip to Plettenberg Bay and um, in the uh, well if anyone can afford that these days, um, yeah, let's say you know, you go to the south coast, um, uh, you know over uh, over Christmas all of that all of that chews up a great deal. Plus, of course, you know the the um, uh, the sort of lifestyle costs of making up for for the failure for the failures of the state. You know your private right. education, your medical aid, etc., etc., etc. You know, think companies. Yeah, um, it's it, it all it all adds up, and you know, then you sort of end up, you know, running your um, uh, running your uh, your your credit card over time. Um, someone says, "How much can uh, can you save every evening? Sit down to eat the six additional people." Yeah, absolutely. 
you know that that's that's the problem. There, think, there, there's there's very little. Uh, there, there's not there's not enough to sort of cover your cover your current your current lifestyle. And I think a lot of the unsecured lending is probably sort of not 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 just happening through formal institutions, but you know loan sharks or uh, that's a few or maybe friends or family if you if you fought if you if you're lucky. So I think a lot of this is not really captured. Yeah, I think I think that's actually one of the other things driving this is that. In South Africa, we've got a relatively small group of people who are uh, have stable incomes, and they are supporting often many family members. I, I know that whenever they kind of do these studies of people and how many dependents they have, the numbers are very high. Um, I, I remember this back when when there were those big strikes on the mines, and there were miners earning sort of fifteen thousand rand a month as an entry thing, and and the question was why are they complaining about not being able to afford you know living costs at all when you when you're doing that and that's because each of those miners was supporting like eight people because unemployment is so high um mm. people expect one job to have to cover cover stuff and i'm sure that adds as well to the debt burden here um yeah. McCorney, final thoughts on the story so yeah that's true the part about people supporting um extended family members i think people call it black techs or but i don't think it's strictly black people that do that um i think that's actually one argument people make for why you'll never see nationwide protests take up the form of riots over um inequality or extreme poverty in south africa is that there's people are being supported by other family members and they make up for where those people cannot afford. Uh, but I do think that people are under great financial strain. I don't think that's necessarily a role that government needs to fill. If anything, I think that should be motivation to go out in 2024 and go and vote because um, part of why people's um, purchasing power has reduced so much is poor financial policy and poor decision-making coming mm -hmm. out of of government and you can only have a say in that every five years and that opportunity is presenting itself again next year and so you should go out in the numbers and do something about it all right let's move quickly to our final story for today and this is president sir ramaphosa was speaking at the anc's western cape elective conference the anc in the western cape has not had a particularly good couple of years uh, ever since the anc lost power in the province it's been in a sort of kind of what seems like a bit of a death spiral. It's had lots of infighting. It's really struggled. And I think every single election it's shrunk its vote share in that province. Um, but Ramaphosa expressed confidence. He said uh, that uh, he thinks that the Western Cape can really turn it around, especially if they are unified. Um, he said, I would like you as the Western Cape ANC to surprise everyone, to surprise even those within our own ranks who sometimes think that, no, the Western Cape for the ANC is a lost cause. We are not a lost cause. We can achieve a clear majority. Uh, he also went on to talk about coalitions at national government, Ramaphosa said. People often ask me, are you going to win the next election? I said, that is a very silly question. We are going to win the next election without any doubt. Uh, he said that this would only happen, however, if the ANC remained united. And that this was the single most important factor towards them winning the next election. Uh, he said that if the party was not united, that they would, quote, start off as losers. Um, he said, however, if they were united, that victory was certain. Uh, in my own head, I do not think of coalitions because it is going to be a straight win, a straight victory, said Ramaphosa. Akone, what do you make of Ramaphosa's confidence? 
These kind of uh, remarks remind me of Donald Trump. You know, they're very, <laughs> very ambitious and they're big. We're going, we're going to win big. It just, it just, it just reminds me of that. I wish he was as confident about the. We're going to win huge. <laughs> you. <laughs> You're going to get tired of winning. <laughs> That's one of my favorite videos, um, <laughs> Terrence. Uh, but I think. Um, I wish he was as confident about South Africa as he is about the ANC. I, I call false optimism on this. I can't help but beam when you were talking about the ANC in the Western Cape and its downward spiral. It's just involuntarily just beaming. Uh, but I, I, I think he, he, he's speaking just confidently. But I don't think the reality on the ground is reflective of those comments. But I do admire the, the optimism. Terence, um, interesting here that he doesn't say, you know, if we make the right choices, if we campaign well, anything like that. He just says, as long as we stay united as a party. And I think this really does reflect how Ramaphosa has, in fact, governed, which is ANC unity, basically above all other priorities. Look, uh, I, I've, I've, I've said this before. I think that, that Ramaphosa has fundamentally uh, performed his term of office as the president of the ANC, not the president of South Africa. You're quite right. Um, I think that it's it it's his prime purpose uh, to 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 keep the ANC together because that's kind of uh, I'm not sure there's a great deal of strategic thinking behind it, but you know if it splits, then they probably then they probably lose. You know, it's that sort of very very baseline thinking. Um, no, uh, look, he's um, I suppose as my late mother would say, you know, well he would say that, wouldn't he? Um, you know, he's, uh, it's, it's sort of blithe confidence, you know, it's a, very much in the same line as, as we combat state capture and as we rebuild our institutions, you know, while we, you know, keep cadre deployment there because it's such a, you know, it's such a gift to accountability in South Africa. Um, and, you know, as we go to solve the world's problems and, uh, just wait, just wait, you know, coming around the corner, but there's, I think there's also something there that speaks to the political culture of a liberation movement that, you know, you need to remain united. You need to keep together. You must always keep on going forward, even when there's it's, there's no sense of what you actually want to do with going forward. Um, so look, uh, for, for, for what it's worth, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to make my call now and you can hold me to it. The ANC will not get a majority in the Western Cape. <laughs> yeah. Although who knows? You never know that uh, maybe they, you know, maybe the the DA gets forty nine percent of the vote there, and then suddenly the ANC is back in power in the West Western Cape. That would well, but, that would be a political earthquake. Look, uh, uh, someone someone I know who uh, who lives there and who's not particularly DA sympathetic once said to me, "You know, Western Cape ANC does all the campaigning that DA needs." <laughs> Oh, I, I suspect that they will probably be a fairly irrelevant part of the Western Cape in the next election, uh, regardless of how well the DA does there. Um, anyway, that's not a discussion. I think for now we are out of time. So thank you very much, everyone. I hope that you all have a wonderful day. Um, and we will see you tomorrow for a short version of The Daily Friend at 5. Uh, have a good one, everyone. Cheerio.